This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Angela uh, Bredo Chevier. Um, she is actually a senior researcher at the Institute of Social Sciences at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. And her brand new Sunni Press book is entitled Religion and Empire in Portuguese India, Conversion, Resistance, and the Making of Goa. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Hash, for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. A fascinating work about a fascinating space. Um, Maybe by way of a a short introduction, Goa. What is Goa? (laughs) Of course, you could write a book on that, I'm sure, and you partially did. But tell us a bit about Goa. Well, it's not uh, an easy question to answer because there is, in my opinion, there is not a Goa. Uh, Actually, there are many Goas. When we, depends on the people with whom you are talking about, um, if, because, because Goa, well, what we today call the state of Goa, um, is a history of um, well, long history of course but but the political history that is meaningful for the what we call today the state of goa that starts in 1510 in my opinion because before that you didn't have these uh, political boundaries these political boundaries were created because of the portuguese empire and in this state of goa of today you have some parts which have been submitted to the portuguese uh, colonialism since 1510 until the second half of the until the end of Portuguese domination, 1961. But other parts was just submitted from the well, late 18th century until 1961. So, so you have two written of um, Portuguese rule in Goa, and these two different writings and what they entailed make Goa much more diverse than we can in the well in principle think about it you know so so that's what i have to say about goa besides the fantastic beaches and all that stuff Uh, yes the fantastic beaches um so then your work would you say your work is primarily an historical work um sorry i didn't understand well would you say it's an historical work and and so what sources do you look at for your argument well, I work uh, to several sources. Um, the fact that I'm I've been trained in in Europe, in Portugal, but also in Italy, 
my my supervisor, my PhD supervisor is an Indian scholar, Kirti and Chaudhary. Um, that that combination makes me aware of the different, well, the multiple types of sources I I should uh, and I used to to in this the research that uh, this book is based on. Um, so so I use administrative sources, cultural sources, religious sources, local sources from Goa or sources produced in different places. So I, I think that it's very important to not have a monolithic approach to sources. And what I've tried to do as much as possible was to bring to this book the multiple perspectives of the people involved in the process of Portuguese um, and colonialism in, in Goa. So, so I have like um, letters from missionaries, but also countings of population, um, documents on lands, land owning, you know, these uh, very different materials section. What would you say is the main argument or gist or, or takeaway of the, of the work? Oh, yes, I'm... Well, the main argument of the work is that um, conversion to Christianity was a key factor to understand the durability of Portuguese presence in Goa. And secondly, that uh, for that um, goal, conservation of power, the role played by local elites converted to Christianity was absolutely crucial in, in to, to understand that. This is a really important point that you delineate. Uh, so, so let's dive into this. The conversion of local elites. Say a bit more about that and say a bit more perhaps about some of the conversion strategies that you have discovered in your work. Yes. Um, well, uh, the conversion, uh, the, the word conversion, maybe I start with this. The word conversion is uh, very difficult actually to apply to, to an Indian um, society of the 16th century, 17th century. Um, and that's why in my, in my because this book is based on my, my PhD thesis in Portuguese. And in Portuguese, I don't speak of conversion in the title, but I speak of cultural conversion because there is a difference between religious conversion and cultural conversion. So, so, so when in the English title, the word is conversion in, in that sense is a bit more ambiguous uh, for what I mean by conversion. Uh, because what I understand first is that the, the local populations and the, the religiosity of the local populations didn't allow to a conversion that was typical for monotheist um, religions. So, so, so what I... I try to explain in my book is that there is a kind of nominal conversion to Christianity. And then there is a process of Christianization. That's what I call cultural conversion. And this process of Christianization has many different um, rhythms and also implications to the different people of Goan, of the Goan region. So, so when we consider the elites, we can frequently say that the majority of them were fully Christianized and Westernized in that way. And, and that's why 
they become a key factor to understand the durability of the Portuguese presence there. But, but this level of Christianization, we, we don't find in other social groups um, in, in Goa. And that is related with uh, what you were saying about uh, the different strategies. So the strategies of conversion or Christianization. And um, so, so what I try to show in my book is uh, that there is a particular strategy directed to poor people or yes, disadvantaged people. And this is a more, let's put it that way, materialistic strategy offering better conditions of life and for miserable people, poor, very poor people, obviously, to get into better conditions of life was was very attractive. But not only that, uh, the, the Christian message, uh, that was not practiced, in fact, but it was the Christian message, message of equality between everybody. Uh, this Christian message was also very attractive for a society that was extremely hierarchical. And, uh, and some of the things that missionaries were proposing, people of, well, lower castes, if we can call it like that, for that period, because also the question of castes is not so obvious in the 16th century as, as it is later. Um, the, the, what the missionaries proposed to people, disadvantaged people, is that they will they would get more honors than in their previous situation. So, so conversion to Christianity for many of these people could look like a kind of social mobility process and escaping so to um to um to a fight, a social fight that was somehow predetermined, could be understood like that. And that also maybe explains why conversion of more disadvantaged people was in a way easier to, to, to obtain. The same didn't happen with the local elites because local elites didn't want, did not want to convert at all. I mean, nobody wanted to convert obviously, but, uh, but facing the challenges, them would convert more easily than others. And the elites were not uh, interested in conversion at all because, because obviously conversion would mean um, losing their local status. And, and that was obviously something they didn't want to, to do. And, and they were also, in general, they were also convinced that the Portuguese rule would not last long. Uh, because the previous experience they had was the Sultanate of Bichapur. And that had lasted for 40 years, um, actually. Uh, sometimes we think about a long-lasting rule of the Bichapur Sultanate, but no, it was a very, well, it was like two generations. So, so there was a vivid memory of these short-term uh, rulers, uh, which was the memory of the full 15th century. The, the, the rulers, Vishayanagar, Bamani, Sultanate, and then Bishapur, all of them did not last long. So we can also uh, imagine, because we can, I cannot prove this, but I, also, I can also think that for local elites, Portuguese rule was probably, well, it was very different because we're foreigners, but because also they were foreigners, why not to think that they were 
less they were weaker than the locals because well, Portugal had one million inhabitants at that period, and and Goa had more or less one hundred thousand, like ten percent of the Portuguese uh, kingdom. So, so these variables maybe help us to understand that for local elites, this was not uh, something to last long. And uh, but when the Portuguese started to convert to the disadvantaged groups and the groups that were that were um, performing the services that would allow the local elites to keep their status, their social status, then things started to change also for the local elites because because if initially they didn't want to convert because of their status, afterwards their status were being challenged precisely because they did not have any more access to the same services that would allow them to 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 keep their status and that together with a lot of laws that were downgrading their status if they did not convert namely uh, taking um taking the ability taking off the ability of decide deciding in the villages about the village life uh, then things started to be really difficult for these people to keep keep on not converting. And we know that like 30% probably abandoned the territory, but 70% um, 70, 70 decided to stay. And those that decided to stay finally converted pragmatically. And, uh, and if in the beginning there was already this, well, well, they kept like playing in the two chef words, playing to be, Christians, but not being Christians, actually. Um, the missionaries' strategies were to Christianize them from the early childhood. So missionaries were very aware that the people that had converted in the second half of the 16th century were not true Christians. They were very aware of that. They knew that was something that did not happen from a moment to another. But they were also aware that if education was starting with the early childhood, then these people could, these people and their children and their grandchildren would become true Christians. So there, there was a very big investment in education, uh, in the equation of Portuguese, in Portuguese, in the Portuguese language. And it, education in Christianity and uh, Christian Western Portuguese ways of, of living, and um, but since uh, there was at the same time also in Portugal uh, a discussion and a debate uh, about how um, laborers, how much laborers should be educated, because education for laborers was something that could compromise their work in the fields. And um, because the time they were going to schools, et cetera, was time that were, they were not working in the fields. Uh, there was a big discussion on that in Portugal at that time. Uh, what, uh, how, how good was for the economy of the kingdom and the empire that lower people were educated? And there was a big debate on that and saying, no, lower people should not be so educated because that compromises all the system. And, and so, so the investment in education was mainly on the elites. 
So Christianization, that process I was talking about, the full Christianization, you can find it mainly in the elites, in the local elites, while in the other groups you have lower levels of Christian religious Christianization and certainly even lower levels of knowledge of Portuguese language, of Portuguese ways of thinking and the cognitive implications that knowing that language just from the early childhood would entail. Oh, I'm glad you touched on this idea of Christianization that you mentioned at the outset of, uh, of our podcast. Could you say a bit more about the delineation between conversion proper or religious conversion and Christianization or this other category that you address in your dissertation as more of a cultural conversion. What are the marks of Christianization that are different from conversion? Would you say? Yes. Uh, well, we have to put it in the context of early 16th, 16th century context now. And in 16th century context, Portuguese context, uh, well, it's Iberian. In, in Spain, it happens similarly. Um, when in the moment that you say, well, that you are submitted to baptism and become formally a Christian, in that moment, you also become like a Portuguese. I'm going to put this between commas, but there is a juridical legal principle that in that period that is applied saying that baptism is similar to birth. Um, to birth. So someone that is was born like a Portuguese would be obviously a Christian. So someone that converted to Christianity was like having being born in Portugal. So being like a Portuguese. And, and that is very, in a way, it's very exciting. Actually, there is in, in 1542, that is a decree of the Portuguese king saying that people that were living in Goa, um, independently of the place and the nation they belong to, if Christians, they had the same rights and obligations. So like Portuguese and Indians, if converted to Christianity, have the same rights and obligations. So when I'm talking about conversion, and, and as I was saying, I think that majority of, well, majority, the great, great majority of people converted for pragmatic reasons, this entailed a juridical change in status, in the political status. Because, but because from the moment these people converted, legally converting, um, they were becoming full vessels of the Portuguese king. So they would be submitted to the Portuguese law to, uh, while in the previous situation, they were not fully submitted in the Portuguese law. So for private matters, it would be local law that would, would be applied while in the... So this legal change of the status of the people that theoretically converted. I mean, they converted in the sense that they were submitted to baptism and the sacrament of baptism. And so nominally, well, not nominally, functionally, they have converted. But what what, uh, what I try to differentiate in my book is that this change of identity, well, legal identity and political identity did not entail uh, a inner change, no, a inner change. And that's the difference that I, I do between conversion in the Goan or Indian, I think, can I could say in the Indian context. Um, 
does not exist uh, in the same way it exists from Judaism to Christianity or from Christianity to Judaism or from Islam to Christianity. We, we are thinking about very different religious situations. So my, my argument is that actually for the locals in this first moment, Christianity was like... Um, a cumulative thing, like the God and the Virgin Mary and the Christian saints could easily become part of the local pantheon, religious pantheon, because it was also the way how mainly it operated locally, um, the religious um, beliefs and the devotions and practices. So, so Christianization is precisely the moment when when missionaries, priests try to overcome this problem, this problem that there is not a real conversion. So, so, so there is something else. Uh, well, it's what was available was something else. Was trying to, to, to Christianize convert people to Christianization. So it's the other way around. You can see, like, so it's there is no 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 conversion. So, but people become in a way, cultural converted to Christianity through the process of education, in a way, which entails Christianization. So, um, yes, I don't know if I was clear, but I think in the book it's a bit more clear than this. Definitely sounded clear to me. <laughs> but I'm sure folks will, will take a deep dive into the book if they're interested in, in the nuts and bolts of, of what you're saying. Um is it fair to say that your work mm, uh, colors, textures, may, maybe even problematizes how we think of colonization or the colonizer-colonized relationship? Would you say there's something in your work that is somewhat of a perhaps intervention in how we think of this process? Yes, uh, I, I would say that. Um, please, yeah, please say more about the nature yeah, because, of intervention. Well, what, in a way, I tried, I mean, obviously, the binary colonizer colonized is always there. We cannot escape from it. But in my book, I also try to overcome some schematically ways of approaching this relationship and, and how I was trying to do this. First, from doing what I call somehow a history from within. It's not because, you know, there are people that do history from below that is concentrated in the colonized, let's put it that way. Then there are people that do history concentrated on the top-down, on have a more top-down approach, the colonizers. What I propose is a history from within, which I mean by a history from the groups involved in the from within the groups involved in the process. So when I think about the Portuguese and other Europeans, they were not only Portuguese, I try to understand, for example, their, um, how to put it that way, how their imagination, their old imagination, their culture, um, and also their divisions, their heterogeneity, because they are not all equal. They come from different backgrounds, social backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. And, um, and and also Europe is changing in this period very there is there are abrupt changes in Europe in this period so we cannot think about these people like the Portuguese or the colonizers because because they are not I mean they are 
all Christians, yes, we can say that fairly enough. But but we have to think and to understand what's going on also in their minds uh, and their imagination also of power and of empire. And, uh, and this imagination is also changing. So, so these people that are moving in different waves to, to Goa, they are not exactly the same in the same periods. And they also change uh, their approach to the process of colonization. I mean, we in, in the case of Goa, you can clearly see that between 1510 to 1530s, you have a kind, a certain kind of approach. And from the 1530s onwards, you have a different kind of approach. And, and that's and if you see it in that way, then you can understand better the all the process. That's what I'm interested in, in the process. And I, I do the same with the local population. When I was speaking of the short uh, time uh, rulers previous to the Portuguese ones, as shaping the political culture of the locals, uh, it's also a, what I find well, what I call a perspective from within, uh, from their experiences uh, before the Portuguese arrived, which was the culture, political culture of these people. Uh, how were they used to, to, to behave towards rulers because they had never been autonomous or independent. They always were submitted to some, some out, out, outside rulers. What, what, how they were used to negotiate or to resist, which were the tools they were using. And, and finally, I have, well, I, I use uh, an important sociologist, uh, Norbert Elias, who has uh, this, um, well, this book that is on a different, very different situation, but I use it, which uh, this book is called The Established and the Outsiders. And, um, and I think all the time of the locals as the established. With because they are established the people that were there, and the Portuguese as the outsiders. So and and the, the framework of this book also allows to think about how the established face this bunch of people that are outsiders, so different outsiders. And and I think this this allows to bring some more complexity to the to to this process. It's not that if fight is violence because. There is lots of violence from the Portuguese part towards the locals. It's not that my intention. It's not a revisionist in that sense. Intention is more. Uh, my intention is really to complexify and also to to um, give back dignity to the locals because when if we see the locals only as victims, um, I think we are uh, expropriating their dignity. Because, uh, because we have really to think on demographics. Portuguese were not so many; they were really very few when compared to the number of locals. So, so if this bunch of Portuguese, okay, with with uh, fire guns and all that, it's true, but able to to dominate when ten percent of the all Portuguese population, just like that, for sure, it's not possible. It was not. So then, along along the lines, uh, along these lines, uh, let's perhaps invoke your um, subtitle: "Conversion, Resistance, and the Making of Goa." Say a bit about resistance. Mm. Sorts of resistance to be encounter. Yes, yes, sure, sure. Resistance is definitely part of, of the process, and um, well, 
the first, I would say that the first sign of resistance is abandoning the territory. Um, and like uh, in the second half of the 16th century, already some viceroys were really afraid um, because they were saying if the territory is desert, it's not interesting for us. I mean, if I have, we have no people to work, uh, what's the matter of having conquered that territory? So even, yes, because they are also pragmatic. I mean, there are letters talking openly and frankly about this. We find this territory deserted and uh, without people, it, it's not interesting. So, so even there are some moments when the strategies of the Portuguese crown are smoother in order to, to allow people to stay, no? Uh, because, they, because they also knew that uh, depopulated territory was, it would not bring any advantage to them. So abandoning was the first form of resistance, of open resistance, but was also, it could also have been a kind of strategy aware at the moment, they were aware that if they abandoned for the port, they would that would make the Portuguese weaker. They it was also a way of, you know, of interacting with the Portuguese, so putting pressure uh, to the Portuguese strategies. Um, and then you have lots of smaller or bigger revolts. Well, the most famous in the 16th century is what the missionaries called martyrdom of the of Kunkuli. It's um, a village in the in South Goa, and um, where where five Jesuit missionaries were killed, and uh, well, there was lots of uh, of um, confusion, and the Portuguese also reacted extremely violently to to this to this revolt, but revolts. It's well. It's a common thing happening all throughout all the periods, all the periods, well, bigger or smaller. And but there is some a geography of the revolts. Uh, the, the revolts are mainly um, until the, the 18th century. They are mainly in the peripheries of the Portuguese power in what in the central territories of Goa, because we are talking about the central territories of Goa, the ones that were under Portuguese rule in that moment, no? Uh, and, and that we can you can see that the Portuguese power is, is more fragile, weaker, weaker in the borders. And, uh, and so the relationship between the local villages and villagers with the uh, other rulers, namely in this case Bijapur Sultanate, um, and then the Marathas is is also stronger because of that. So in, in these cases you can see revolt happening. But then you also can see other small forms of revolt, like what I well well an important political scientist and anthropologist James Scott called everyday forms of resistance. You also can see everyday forms of resistance and everyday forms of resistance is not practicing what you are supposed to practice. So that's why also you have so many cases of the of inquisition, uh, so many inquisitorial records because local population do not convert. Uh, or, or they convert, but they continue to practice 
Um, so there is a cultural resistance, a kind of permanent cultural resistance uh, towards towards the pressure to Christianization also. Um, so you you have this resistance is always there. Resistance is always there, but there are also again different levels of resistance. No, if you it's forms of resistance that do not um, change. The political reality, but other forms of resistance that sometimes actually have as an have an as an answer a strengthening as how do you say strength of the Portuguese uh, the Portuguese power is strength because wants to contain the the pulsion to 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 revolt and uh, but there is no uh, until seventeen ninety nine. At the date of the French Revolution, there is no real revolt against the Portuguese. Uh, well, against the Portuguese power in the sense, in order to put an end to Portuguese power with a, an alternative uh, project, political project. Until 1799, reasons that for me are not yet clear, but. Um, well, the reasons for 1789 are very clear to me, but why only then? Um, it's not yet clear for me. But uh, yes, but resistance is is over. It's it's always present. It's everywhere in in different moments, and and you can see it in microanalysis. Very interesting ways of of resisting it. And you have, if I can just add a little bit, uh, for the Goan case, you have a fantastic source. Which is it's a collection that is called Books of the Communities, which which registered the decisions of the village elites, um, and um, and you have hundreds of books registering the decisions of the village elites, and this and I I believe and that's something I'm trying to do now, a systematic analysis of these books will also allow us to understand. At the micro level, how resistance operated. What lasting legacy, if any, um, has there been in terms of Goa today? Of the Portuguese colonization? Well, I mean, I think there are, frankly, many legacies. Uh, Christianity is still a, a legacy. Like 55, 25% of the population of Goa is, is still Christian. What compared to other regions of India, I can imagine it's much more now. Uh, I mean, I know that it's, I don't know if there is any other region of, or state of, of India that has this kind of ratio. I imagine there is not, even Goa is very small, but still. Um, but but there are other, I would say that there are many other. One, one I would even say is the role of women in Goa, because uh, one of the aspects uh, I didn't refer before uh, of um, Christianization or conversion to Christianity and this legal shift was that women uh, could um, inherit uh, like men in the 16th century. And that was something that was not available to them in the local law. The local Hindu law didn't didn't allow them to to inherit like their brothers and uh, husbands etc and um, and and so there is a kind of um how to put it kind of 
female less but conversion in Goa. And, and you can see lots of widows, for example, that convert to Christianity. Uh, and widows, as you know, would not have a, an easy life if they did not convert. Lots of widows that convert to Christianity. And you, you see that in, in the villages. Widows speaking, well, in these decisions of the villages, you can see the widows uh, having agency, for example. And, and I would say that I don't know now, because now the, the state of Goa changed a lot, as you know, because there is lots of immigration from different parts and South, South India is mainly. Um, but, uh, but I would say that in 1961, perhaps, the, the status of women in Goa was, was maybe it was different. I'm not saying that it was better, but it was possibly different than and then it was in other parts of India and uh, yes in other parts of India um and then there are so many things Raj, I mean food ways of dressing um, different cultural practices uh housing um obviously indeed have... indeed so I'll ask you um perhaps one final question and feel free also to add whatever else you hope we would touch on. But was there anything about this research that surprised you along the way? Yes. There are many different things that surprised me. But the one that surprised me mostly, I may say, was related to case, to case system. Because, because I had uh, I had read anthropological theory and uh, like all this uh, this production on case uh, in India and um, and then the data I was finding in Goa did not match did not adjust to what, to what I was reading and uh, and first I thought that I was I mean that I was unable because I was a bit stupid I was unable to to, to do it. Uh, but then, then, but then I was well going further, and because I was getting more and more data, and this data did not match again continuously, they, it did not match. And I was thinking that many of the theories on caste in India had been produced. Well, I'm talking about social theory and um, social sciences theories, where it had been produced from the 19th century onwards. Uh, and when the situation of case was already different uh, than it was probably in the 16th century, and I mean, I was speaking about the micro case, but but um, and um, and then I was thinking, yeah, probably. Well, and these theories then was were retro projected to the past to explain the past as well, and and I think that the case of Goal is a very good case. Precisely to challenge many of these things, uh, because one of the um, consequences of the Portuguese early presence is the production of lots of sources of historical sources uh, on different things, and and this makes a kind of um, well, I put it between commas, a kind of ethnography of this local uh, social habits, uh, social organization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, for a very early period, and uh, and in a systematic way, in a system, and so and caste and also Hinduism were the two things that did not match in Goa um, 
with the theories and scholarship, many scholarship I had, I had read. And, and this was the biggest surprise for me. And actually this full, another project uh, that uh, became a book uh, that's Catholic Orientalism in, in, in Portuguese India. Um, no, it's not in Portuguese India. And now I forgot the the subtitle, but that's in, with Ines Supanov. Uh, that was precisely to understand the processes of construction of knowledge on India from the early century onwards. How, uh, but not not as the typical Orientalist process of of construction of knowledge, but coming back to the 16th century when the Portuguese um, and Catholic powers were interfering with the with the Indian. Uh, in the Indian sub subcontinent, so so I would say this was this was the biggest surprises I I really got during my research. Fascinating. <clears throat> Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me again. For those listening, of course, we've been speaking about a fascinating new Sunni press publication, uh, "Religion and Empire in Portuguese India: Convergent Resistance and the Making of." Goa. Keep well till next time. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating um, the, the complexities of um, the colonial experience. Take care. <laughs>